So this morning, uh, I'd like to start a sermon with just a minute clip of something, a little, little something different that'll actually probably be quite familiar. Adam? Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Green-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels, doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles, wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my favorite things. Girls in white dresses with blue satin sashes, snowflakes that stay on my nose and eyelashes, silver-white winters that melt into springs. These are a few of my favorite things. When the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember my favorite things, and then I don't feel so bad. What a film and what a song. Never tire of it, do you? Just extraordinary. What a magnificent song and what a magnificent film and what a great song of my favorite things. By the way, here are just a few of my favorite things. My wife, Regina, our three children, my late parents, my living in-laws, my brothers and cousins and friends, so many people I've known across all the churches I've served, seeing God's world, fly fishing, skiing, golfing, hiking, sitting on a rock in a desert, blue skies, breathing, all those I've known over the years that are now long gone, cacti, colorful fish, smiles, laughter, Snowmass Chapel, and Jesus, of course. I could go on and on, and these are not only some of my favorite things, but some of what I consider to be life's greatest blessings. Well, I know we're all different. I know that each of you has a list of your own favorite things as well, and I'd like to invite you for 15, 20 seconds or so, just take a moment and if you were singing a song about favorite things, what would be on your list? Just take a moment and think of some of your favorite things. Well, I begin this sermon this morning with this idea of favorite things because it's important to know that blessings and being grateful for them are foundational to living life as God would have us live life. And for me, as well as for each of you, our blessings and our sources of joy shape who we are and serve to sustain us through thick and thin. One thing that is striking about the song, some of my favorite things, is that it is sung in a movie about a family having to run and hide from the Nazis during one of the most horrific times on our planet. In other words, in the film, favorite things and blessings are celebrated in the midst of a time of profound pain and suffering. What a great reminder for us all. Blessings can be found in the midst of pain, and pain can be found and experienced in the midst of blessings. All of us who dare to stand in the pulpit are taught not to preach from open wounds, but only from those places that have healed and are scarred. 
The reason is that a minister's stuff should not become the stuff parishioners have to deal with. His preaching is never about the minister, but about Jesus. That said, today I begin a sermon series that reflects not only some of my scars, but some of my open wounds. Wounds, in fact, that I believe that many of you share with me. If these were only my wounds, I would not be getting into this subject today. Gosh, there is so much that is astonishingly wonderful about this time in life. So many incredible people and much that brings great joy. And yet, and yet there is so much happening that wrecks my heart every day and wounds me. Daily mass shootings, war in Europe, untreated mental illness, inexcusable levels of homelessness, a border crisis that leaves our citizens terrified living on their own property, and conversely, people on the border with no hope trying to seek better lives. Illness, addictions, broken relationships, mistreated children, abused women, I could go on and on and on and on about these realities that are around us. All of these things wreck and break my heart every day. I refuse to ignore this pain and suffering. I refuse to live my life going happily through it, imagining that none of this should impact me. And I believe that our walk with Jesus compels us, causes us, forces us, I pray, to feel and respond to what surrounds us if we take our faith seriously. It's why Jesus said, where were you when I was hungry? Where were you when I was thirsty? And yet, in the midst of all I just said, raindrops on roses and kittens with whiskers, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings, these are a few of my favorite things. This is the way life is, isn't it? Always has been. And I acknowledge I'll just be touching the tip of the iceberg on this subject of the mixture of joy and pain and suffering and what we do with it. And I'm just touching the tip of the, earth, the iceberg because this whole area gets into some of the most profound questions there are in life. But I also feel it's important to touch on this topic periodically because of the world we live in, and after all, we need a faith that can actually help us, right? We need a faith that's relevant, that can help us when the rubber meets the road. So I've called this sermon series, Waypoints of Faith in a World of Joy and Pain. Now, many of you know waypoints are used for all kinds of things, like sailing or hiking. A waypoint is a navigational point to head toward on a journey, gets you from place to place, helps move you along. And when traveling, often multiple waypoints are used to help get a person to her or his destination. So this sermon series is all about points of our faith that can guide us as we journey through this life that is filled with so much joy, so much wonder, so many blessings, but also pain. Over the course of these weeks, each sermon will be self-contained, 
But overall, I'd like to explore how we as people to respond to pain and suffering in Scripture, which so often reflects our own reactions, and why it's important for us to know these stories. I'm going to get into a few theological views on the subject and what we can trust about God through it all. And finally, I wanted to get into some things that will help us navigate this life of joy and pain that hopefully will help lead us to healing and growth, deeper faith and trust in God, more committed selfless service, compassion, and ultimately love. Before I get started, however, I need to lay this foundation. It is foundational to our faith. No matter what it looks like, goodness, what is right, restoration, reconciliation, healing, forgiveness, and love prevail when it's all said and done. That is our Christian story. Sometimes such things will happen in this life in a variety of ways. But if not in this life, with certainty in the one that follows. As I and other people have said, we are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. It is Easter to which we point ourselves toward. Yes, Jesus suffered and died, but resurrection and love and new beginning followed. Death is not the ending, but a fresh start. Easter is the end point of our journey. And joy, not pain, has the final word. Which is why we are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. I've suffered during my life, I know all of you have, in a variety of ways. And during such times, there have been moments in which I have lost, and I've lost sight of the fact I'm an Easter person. And all I could see was Good Friday. But Easter remained, whether or not I saw it. God's commitment to us is that love wins when it's all said and done, and love is what matters the most. Goodness overcomes and eternal life is our destination. And God invites us to keep these truths in our minds in the toughest of times, not only because they're helpful, but because they are true. After all, our faith in part is defined by hope. So let's begin today by looking at some tough stuff, and that is looking at Scripture and, and how people of faith reacted to difficulty. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories. So I had to choose just a few. Long ago, there was a fellow named Habakkuk. He lived when his home country was in the midst of being decimated by an invader. It was a terrible time, to say the least. And here's what one person writes about Habakkuk and the short book in the Bible named after him. Person writes, living by faith can be a bewildering venture. We rarely know what's coming next, and not many things turn out exactly and precisely in the ways we anticipate. Habakkuk one day said, in essence, to God, God, right now you don't seem to make much sense to me. Habakkuk gives voice to our bewilderment and articulates our attempts to make sense of things. 
And here's what Habakkuk said in the book, short book named after him. He said, God, how long do I have to cry out for help before you listen to me? How many times do I have to yell? Why don't you do something about this? Anarchy and violence breaks out, quarrels and fights all over the place. Why are you, why are you silent now? And in this short book in the Hebrew Scriptures, the prophet expresses dismay, anger, hurt, disillusionment, and confusion as to why things are the way they are and why God doesn't seem to be responding. And while this is not the whole story of Habakkuk, what is important is that his reactions to pain and suffering reflect how sometimes we react to pain and suffering. And I think, in part, that that story and so many others are in Scripture to illustrate that this is part of the life journey for us, for all of us. That it's not a sign of God's absence, it's a sign of what life can be about. Of course, there was the prophet Jeremiah. Here's what one person writes about him. Jeremiah's life spanned one of the most troublesome periods in ancient history. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong. This is why it's so important for us to be students of history, by the way. You know, I hear all the time, things are worse now than they've ever been. Well, that, that's just not, it's just not so. We have unique challenges. We have unique problems, some. But it's not like things are the worst now. They've, I mean, not even by a long shot. Jeremiah's life, as one person writes, spanned one of the most troublesome periods in all of history. And everything that could go wrong did go wrong. What happens when everything you believe in Whatever happens, what happens when everything you believe in and live by is smashed to bits? Any one of us who lives in disruptive times looks for companions who have been through it, wanting to know how they went through it, how they made it, and what it was like. And Jeremiah can be this companion for us. And here's what Jeremiah said thousands of years ago. Do these questions sound relevant now and what we hear now? Jeremiah said, God, I've got to question you about matters of justice. Why are the wicked so prosperous? Why do dishonest people succeed? You plant them and they take root. They always speak well of you, but they don't really care about you, God. Jeremiah goes through his times of trial by wrestling and getting into the deep questions with God, which obviously is an invitation for us to do the same thing and to remember that it's not worse now than it ever has been. This is the way that life is in this part of our journey of eternity. And then there was Job. One person writes about Job. Job asked, why me? He refused to take cliches as answers. He refused to let God off the hook. He suffered in the vital areas of family and health. He went to God with all of his questions. He was doing everything right when suddenly everything goes wrong. And here is what Job had to say. Obliterate, they obliterate the day I was born. Blank out the night I was conceived. Let it be a black hole in space. May God above forget it ever happened. Do you see what God has dished out for me? It could turn anyone's stomach. He wasn't in a very good place, was he? While things dramatically change for Job over the course of his life, in the midst of his torment, Job not only questions God, but himself and the few friends that show up to console him. 
But what's interesting in this story is the few friends that do show up to console him quickly respond to his suffering in a way that we still see today. They blame Job for his own suffering. They blame the victim. In the book of Job, his friends arrive, and at first they simply sit with Job. But soon they begin to make sense of Job's pain by blaming Job for what he's enduring. In our reading today from Job, one of his friends says, Job, God does not twist justice. God, does God the Almighty twist what is right? Your children must have really sinned and done something wrong. That's why you're suffering. It's your kid's fault. Well, clearly today, sometimes people blame the victims and the people who are suffering for the suffering and pain they're experiencing, whether such blame is rational or not. But aside from these reactions I've described so far, others in Scripture, when encountering difficulty, react to God by turning to God more fully and by trusting God more. Sometimes that happens. Countless stories of this, but for example, in the book of Daniel, there's a story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I always thought somebody should name their triplets those names. <laughs> They've been ripped away from their homeland, their world, and what they had come to had been completely changed and turned upside down. And one day, they're ordered to be executed. And this is what they say to their executioner. Your threat means nothing to us. If you throw us into the fire, the God we serve can rescue us from your roaring furnace and anything else you might do. But even if God doesn't rescue us, it won't make a difference because we trust God. Then in the Gospel of Matthew, we hear the story of a woman who had been critically ill for more than a decade. She spent all of her money on care that did nothing for her. She faced a cute community that ostracized her. And yet... In the midst of all of this, she forces her way through a crowd to get to Jesus because she trusts him. While there are many other examples of trust, conversely, sometimes people who had a relationship with Jesus begin to question who Jesus really is when life goes badly. In our gospel reading today from Matthew, we heard the story of John the Baptist who had been thrown into prison. That prison cell was a long way from the Jordan River where he'd been, baptized pe- been baptizing people. That prison cell was a long way from the day that he actually baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. And John finds himself in jail. And clearly he begins to question Jesus' identity. He sends some of his friends to Jesus to ask Jesus, are you really the one? This is the one that he was saying was the Messiah just a little bit beforehand. Are you really the Messiah? Are you truly the one we've been waiting for? This is a poignant reminder that that even when we're close to Jesus, we can question who Jesus is when we're in pain and suffering. Joy. Blessings. Pain struggle. All part of the deal, isn't it? Full-blown blessings in the midst of seemingly out-of-control wrongs. It's part of what it means to be human. It's part of what our faith journey is all about. 
Sometimes there are no easy answers and cliches can be useless. At times things do not seem to be fair and we wonder what God is up to. And so just like people for thousands of years have done, we question, we wrestle, we struggle, we get angry, we wonder, we grieve. And sometimes we even get back to trusting God like never before. This is what it means to be human, and this is what it means to be a person of faith. You see, the point of all these stories I shared, in part, is that our reactions to pain and suffering, even our doubts, are not a reflection of a lack of faith, but they actually are a sign of being in relationship with God. They are an expression of faith. And these stories are an invitation for us to accept our humanness, to celebrate that we have hearts that deeply feel and break. Would we want our hearts to be any other way? Who wants a heart of stone? Got plenty of people around us like that. We don't want to be like that. We want what is right and what is good, thank God. And God, through these stories, says, come to me. Be brutally honest with me. Let it all out. Tell me what's on your mind. These stories invite us to cut ourselves and others slack when we're having a tough time or because they don't meet our image of what a person of faith should be about. To be compassionate towards ourselves. And so over this coming week, I invite you to do a couple of things. First, I invite you to join me in thinking about the tough times in your life and how you've reacted to them. It's important to look back. What have been some of your ways of responding to pain and suffering? What have you learned? What have you learned that you wouldn't take back, give back? How has your faith impacted? Where are you now? What help do you need? What questions do you have? But I also invite you to remember front and center that God commits to you and to me, regardless of how things look, that love wins, as has been said. Our gospel story is about love. Jesus said it over and over and over. Love, love, love. It's all about love. Keep that love front and center in the midst of it all. To remember that Easter and new life and joy is the final word. Not all the stuff that makes us feel like it's Good Friday. So next week I'm going to get into what some theologians have thought over this and what we can trust about God through it all. But in the meantime, Today, as you go about your business, I want you, no matter what's going on, to celebrate and think about some of your favorite things. Things like raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. What are yours?